Welcome, everyone, to the George Sanders Show. Uh, after last week, when we talked about the big blockbuster of Sound of Music and then the new release of uh, The Look of Silence, I, I think we we were fearing that we were getting a little too mainstream on the show. Um, you know, we, we wanted to keep our street cred because that, that's all that Sean has to live by is his, is his street cred. It's true. <laughs> uh, so we decided this week to, to talk about this is probably the most obscure show I can think of that we've done. I don't know. I guess it depends uh, on your level of like what your what your interests are. If you're if you're a fan of anime, which you and I are not, so that's why it seems obscure to me. Uh, see, I think even ab- among anime fans, Neo Tokyo is not that well known. Is it? See, I have no clue. Is that, it's going to really be know. an interesting conversation because neither of us know what the hell we're talking about. Yeah, I think Man of Aaron is the more famous of the two films we're talking about. Right. Um, <laughs> and and that goes to show you when, when we're talking about a 1934 uh, quasi-documentary about uh, shark hunting off the coast of Ireland. Yeah, uh, it's like Robert Flaherty's fifth most famous film. <laughs> From the director of Nanook the North. Yeah. Um, yeah. So anyway, those are the films we're talking about. We're talking about Man of Aaron today uh, and Neo Tokyo, which is a kind of an omnibus uh, kind of anime film from uh, 87, uh, directed by three different directors. And we'll get into that later on the show. Uh, I think we explained the reason for, for that, for these choices last week on the show. Uh, and I don't remember exactly what the the thought process was, so we'll, we'll we'll just let you go back and listen to that episode. I think I think if we explain it again, the two explanations combined would equal the running time of these two tip films put together. <laughs> so. Yeah, it was a very long. Uh, it was it was a you know like Neo Tokyo was kind of a labyrinth yes. of thought. It was we a, it was a long explanation for two short films. Right. So anyway, those are the movies we're talking about. Uh, I don't care if you care <laughs> about it. Uh, we're also going to pick, uh, tying in with the Flaherty, we're going to talk about our essential pseudo-documentary. Uh, and our person of the week, I'm going to keep under wraps for now because uh, I, it's going to be pr- pretty exciting, I think. <laughs> I, I think fans of this show will really really like to hear our discussion on this person of the week here. Wow. So a suspenseful George Sanders show. That's right. Uh <laughs> Uh, and that's about it. Anything else we want to talk about? We're going to talk about what Mike's watching. That's right. That's right. What's Mike been watching? Uh, and uh, and your daughter has a birthday coming up that she I'm does. pretty excited about. Yeah, I not, know what I'm not, get. not nearly as excited as she is. She's pretty darn excited. We had quite a conversation beforehand, and uh, yeah. she wanted me to bring a pinata, but your wife shot that down. No. She said she said that's no good. And I said, "Well, I can come over with just a baseball bat, and we can just hit stuff." No, you're 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 missing what is the the uh, inappropriate part of the <laughs> pinata system for her. I'm just gonna bring a baseball bat and a bag full of candy. Yeah, just you, you bring a bag full of candy. Leave the the giant stick that she is encouraged to hit things with behind. <laughs> Are we gonna play like pin the tail on the donkey and stuff? No. What's what's on the agenda? I you know I agreed to come to this party and I don't know what's happening. Well, they're they're three and four year old kids. You don't need to organize activities. They just invent shit on their own. Well, like, but I'm a you, 30- you, you you put three of them in a room 
and uh-huh. they will invent games for hours and they'll be just fine. The grown-ups will just stand around and talk about like grown-up things. Ah, uh, can I play with the kids? If you want. All right. Yeah. Uh, talking about grown-up stuff sounds boring. Yeah, well, you don't spend 18 hours every day surrounded by children. Well, I I mean, to be fair, I will be incredibly drunk while I'm hanging out with these children. So it That's should That's really the only way to parent. <laughs> right. I'm going to bring a 40 ounce of old English and, mm-hmm. uh, and just, you know, in a baseball bat and it's going to be the best four year old birthday party of all time. Pretty much. Uh, anyway, without further ado, uh, maybe we should hear a clip. If anybody can decipher this Irish dialect. Speaking uh, of drunk. Speaking. Of... <laughs> See people that listen to this show. They would think that this whole thing is scripted the way that, you know, one thing segues into another. But no, this is all off the cuff. We're, we're, we're just rolling with it. It's just the nature of the universe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, speaking of drunk, here's a clip from this Irish movie, Man of Aaron. <laughs> Okay, that's a clip from Man of Aaron, a 1934 film from Robert Flaherty, uh, the infamous director of uh, pseudo-documentaries, as we're calling them today. Or, you know, we'll dive more into that in our discussion. But, uh, you know, he's still infamous, you know, a century uh, after he kind of first came on the scene, long after he died, should I say. Um, The film is set uh, in the Aran Islands off the western coast of Ireland, um, and it, it depicts the day-to-day life of the people, the hard scrabble people that live in this unforgiving land. Uh, we see them trying to plant potatoes, uh, using seaweed and rocks. Um, <laughs> we see them fishing off the, the, uh, kind of treacherous cliffs. Uh, and we see long extended scenes of uh, shark hunting uh, that goes on. And the film is a little over an hour long. Uh, and it's a silent film that had kind of post sound added. There's a, as you wanted to point out, Sean, uh, one of the earliest scores from famed Radiohead <laughs> guitarist Johnny Greenwood. Yeah. Or, so, or some facsimile thereof. 
some some other John Greenwood, perhaps, <laughs> but I'm I'm pretty sure I'm pretty it's the sure guy it's from Radiohead. Radiohead. Yeah, because yeah. it's a really good score. Because how many film composers could there be named John Greenwood? That's really? right. What are the right. odds? Yeah, seriously. Yeah. Um, and there's also um, dialogue that was recorded in post and stuff like that. And so, you know, the the film kind of captures this lifestyle. Now, the kind of you know, contentious part of this movie is that this isn't actually anybody's lifestyle. Um, the 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 main point of this movie, the shark hunting, hadn't been done in over you know half a century. If it if it had ever been done at all. If it, yeah, so there's all that kind of stuff. Uh, my question to you, starting off with this, and and this, I have a feeling this is probably going to be the meat of our discussion. Does that matter at all? The fact that this movie is mostly faked. Yes and no. How nuanced of you, Sean. <laughs> uh, it's, it's interesting. Like, if, if this movie was, was presented as a work of fiction, as, you know, the, the story of, of generic humans living in impossible conditions and eking out a survival... Uh, nobody would complain about it, but but it's not because it's it's by Robert Flaherty and because he is a, a pioneer of of documentary filmmaking and ethnography. It is taken as something that is supposed to be factual, and that raises the issue of the fact that almost nothing in the film is factual. Right. So it's 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 interesting to me that it can be it can be the exact same film and depending on how you look at it it's either a, a masterpiece or just this kind of insidious deception. Yeah. Yeah, it like it gets yeah, the 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 sticky part of this is what is the obligation of a documentarian, right? And and, and uh, is there an obligation? It, well, exa- exactly. That's right. that's actually ultimately the question. It, is there uh, is 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 there some sort of expectation that a documentarian needs to come forth and say, "Hey, guess what? You know, so this this thing was faked, or this thing was recreated, or whatever." Uh, does it matter? Uh, I I am inclined to say no, and I really. I I really dislike the the entrenched ideology surrounding documentary film. And I think we talked a little bit about this last week or last episode when we talked about the look of silence. Uh that there are like these set of rules for what a documentary should be and it's it's things that people learned in school and it's a lot of the influence is from the cinema ter- cinema verite movement of the the 1960s that documentaries are supposed to be unbiased they're supposed to not they're supposed to show like a direct reality and not be manipulated they're supposed to show like filmic truth and that i i think is impossible and also an incredibly limiting way to think about cinema right. like this even even just like the broadest distinction between fiction and nonfiction film, I I I struggle with. Like I I don't know where to draw the line, and if I, and if one should be drawn at all. 
I think I've gotten to the point now. I think the older I get, uh, the less I care. Like, like I don't really give a damn to right. be honest with you. Like, uh, I think, I think I, I don't know. I think I am skeptical enough of any sort of thing that's trying to posit a factual truth. Um, or, or on the flip side, I just take everything as, you know, as it is already. And sure. Tom Cruise drove that race car in days of thunder. Who cares? You know, whatever. I don't care. Um, but so, on, on, on the flip side of that, uh, I mean, journalism has value, right? Absolutely. But, but I don't go, I don't go to cinema for journalism. You know what I'm saying? But, like, but why not? Uh, because I, the stuff that I get out of, actually, this is a good conversation we can have about Neo Tokyo too. I, mm-hmm. I hope I rem- remember to talk about this when we get to it. Um, I think the things that interest me about cinema, uh, there are a dozen things that interest me above that. Like, like for example, with Man of Aaron, uh, I'm much more interested in the use of editing here and the, uh, the construction of the film um, from a technical standpoint and the imagery that is captured, uh, much more so than the factual reality of it. Now I'm not dismissing if someone, if someone wants factual reality out of film, I'm not, I'm not saying that that's unimportant or, or that their opinion is, is misguided or something like that. But to me, uh, I think I've just gotten to a point where I've watched so many movies and I've like, like every, every documentary, even the ones that, that there's always someone nitpicking documentaries like even the ones like the harvard ethnography lab ones like like monica mana like uh like someone came out and was like yes we planned who would be sitting in those cars and it's like oh like (laughs) oh oh, heaven forbid (laughs) you you know uh that that the filmmakers had some say in you know the the staging of their their you know movie that is just a static camera sitting on the face of a human being for 10 minutes at a time you know what i mean um so i for personally i just feel like those those arguments uh carry less weight than than ever before with me well would you would you say that that film should convey some kind of truth maybe not maybe not a fact but a a truth like if it's not if it doesn't get the details right of what actually life is like on the Aran islands do you think it it should convey some kind of truth about human human life and human existence or either on the Aran islands or just in general um i th- i think for a film to be successful wholly successful a film needs to to posit some sort of honesty even if that honesty is based is is about lies or fabrication or what have you um i feel like for me to make a connection with it there's got to be something that rings true in it and and you know ringing true could be i mean star wars or something there's something there's a lot of fundamental truths in star wars even though that movie is completely ridiculous you know what i mean right um but at the same time i don't want to i don't want to say i don't know i i'm trying to rack my brain of a film that is full of shit that i still love but uh 
I'm having a hard time thinking of one. So I, yeah, I, I guess I would agree to that part of your your. Um, right, like I, I, you know, I hesitate to use the word to word should in in regards to to aesthetics because it it it. It it feels to me like setting down rules for for art, and and it's very possible that that there are films that are just completely lies, that you know, aside from something like F for Fake, that is completely lies, but yet conveys a but, lot of truths right. about humans, humanity's propensity to lie. <laughs> right. So exactly, like that's that's the best example, and. Thank you for stealing my essential. I'll think of another one. Uh, absolutely. That whole movie is a documentary about lying that in itself is a lie, but that's the point because it's trying to show this universal truth about lying. Yeah. When I, when I think of movies that are like completely false, I think of something like Crash that just has no, no bearing to reality right. and, and tells lies about the world in a, in a self-congratulatory way that I find offensive. Right. That, sure. Yeah. I, 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 God, I, I wish I had done a little more homework and could have thought of a film that is successful in doing something like that. But, but it, it's true. I, you know, even, even the, well, I think called, say, how about, uh, how about, uh, when Harry met Sally? Um, I don't, I haven't seen when Harry met Sally in so no. long. I can't even remember. But, I, think, I think I think there are like a number of romantic comedies that are entertaining. Breakfast at Tiffany's. Well, yeah, you know, Mickey Rooney is definitely uh, not of Asian descent. Well, even just just, <laughs> just uh, uh, you've seen Breakfast at Tiffany's recently, though, right? No. Yeah. Sorry, Sean. <laughs> I've been watching. I've been watching these obscurities, buddy. Mm -hmm. I, uh, I think that there are a number of romantic comedies that are that are really fictional about the way life and and romance works, but that are nonetheless entertaining. Right, because because I feel like there's, I think those even the good ones still tap into like that kind of lightweightness that you get when you're in love or when some you know like. Yeah, it may. It may well, I think I think they they tap into a seductive lie about romance, a, a kind of fantasy that we enjoy. But it's a but it's a lie. That, but it's a lie that we also tell ourselves. Yeah, you know what I mean. So that's why it works. Is that it? But it, it's not uh, unlike like like F for fake. It's not about like exposing that lie. No, 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 no. It's about propping that lie up. But right. But it's a lie that yeah. But it's but it, I guess it always comes down to that personal connection. You know what I mean? If you can. If you can see yourself within that, and that includes when you're lying to yourself, then it's successful. Uh, off and on for the last uh, several months, I've been I've been kind of watching historical epics because uh, for a long time I wanted to to write about Gladiator because I really hate Gladiator right. because of the way it. You know, because of like some filmic things, like the the editing, the action scenes is bad, and Joaquin Phoenix is really terrible. But also, but mostly because of the ways that it lies about history, and that is is a reason why I've always hated that movie. And but I've never actually written about it. So so I watched a bunch of uh, of other historical epics to kind of see how uh, how Hollywood and how how cinema deals with history. In, in good ways and in bad ways. And, and they almost always change history. And it's, it seems to me that the, the question is not if, it's historic, if a film is historically accurate or not, but 
to what end do they alter history? Like, what is the film trying right. to say right. in its depiction of historical fact? Um, and what I found with like with Gladiator and with uh, uh, Anton uh, Fuqua's King Arthur, which is really terrible, but shares a screenwriter with Gladiator, if I remember wow. right, uh, is that they're they're both altering history in a way that seems to me like it's attempting to sell uh, like a neoconservatist vision of American power in the world uh, at the same time that the neocons were in power in Washington, D.C. and started multiple wars. Uh, So that is a kind of historical deception that I really don't like. And, And I will criticize those films for altering history for devious ends. Whereas something like Man of Aaron is altering history and is altering fact, but I don't think it's doing anything pernicious. Yeah, but you know what's interesting about this movie is that when it came out, a lot of people claimed that it was, that it was ignoring the class struggles of the of the people from this region and and just focusing instead on kind of a man versus nature thing instead of a man versus man kind of ordeal. So yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't know how you can watch this movie and not sympathize with people who literally have to dig under the ground in order to find enough dirt to plant a potato. Right. Well, I'm, I'm not saying I mean, that I necessarily agree with the, the arguments that yeah. were posited at the time, but um, yeah, no, I mean, it, it is, it is not a comprehensive view of the society of the Aran Islands in 1934. Right. But it is. It is a film about the the struggle of ordinary people to to make a living and to survive, and and more than that, I think what what uh, one of the really interesting things about it is, I you know I kept thinking about why these people would move to these islands that right. obviously I, do not want humans living there. Right, and thing. you know the actual Aran Islands uh, are not as bad as Flaherty makes them seem. Like like Flaherty's narration says that there's like no soil on the island at all. Uh, but there's there's actually like green space and there's plant life. You know, it's not as bad as he makes it look. But you know, uh, people have been living on these islands for thousands of years. It's like some of the oldest uh, uh, records of civilization in in the British Isles are on the Aran Islands. Uh, and it kind of it it struck me, you know, that that people would move to this remote place. They didn't really move there in force until. Uh, the 1600s or so, and they did so to escape the English. Mm-hmm. And so it, it kind of, uh, the, the point the, same, the film seemed to be making to me was that people will go to great lengths to avoid being ruled by the English. Yeah. <laughs> well, we can all agree with that, <laughs> right? Yeah, and well, I mean, I, it's just, it's this like human drive for, for freedom to have people not telling them what to do, that they will go so far as to, you know, make this living in the most inhospitable climates just so they'll be a little bit further away from the people who are trying to control them. Right, the tyranny of, yeah, yeah. Well, and and, and there's a, you know, despite the bleakness of it all, there's, there's something in the perseverance of them that is is genuinely uplifting, you know, in this movie. When you like, I when watching it, I was like, I have nothing to complain about. 
<laughs> you know, in, in my life. Um, yeah. As they're patching this hole on this boat, this little boat that they take out into like the choppiest waters, you know, and all of those things. Um, there's something about the fortitude that is inspiring, you know, uh, even if it's all fake, you know, that, that, there's nothing wrong with that. Yeah. Uh, I was, uh, uh, reading the, the Wikipedia as I am want to do, uh, it had a, a nice quote and it's, and it's got like a lot of, of citations of the controversy around Night of Aaron. It's been a very controversial film ever since it came out, uh, especially thought so in the sixties when the, the Verite people started, uh, really attacking it for its distortions. And one of the quotes really, really stuck with me and I, and I put it on Letterboxd and, uh, uh, nobody commented on it, but I think, uh, I think it's like a, a really, uh, kind of a beautiful sentence and it says it's from uh, Richard Barsom in his book on, on Robert Flaherty. It says, uh, seen as the story of mankind over a thousand years, the story of Aaron is the story of man against the sea. It is a simple story, but it is, it is, it is an essential story for nothing emerges out of time except bravery. And that, that kind of last clause uh, has really kind of stuck with me of, I mean, it's, it's, the people who live there, the people who had to move there, imagine like the first person who moved to the Aran Islands and like, look at that giant shark. I am going to hunt it. Right. For its oil. And you know, it's, it's, it's incredibly brave. It's also really kind of stupid, but that is, is humanity to me. That's right. That's us. And, and you know, whether it's, it's factual or not, I think it's, it's conveying an essential truth about us. I, I agreed completely. Absolutely. Well, this and this movie wouldn't be talked about today, uh, regardless of its, you know, uh, truthiness, as it were, um, if it weren't for the filmmaking, you know, at hand. And this is a very exciting movie. Like the like watching the beginning of this thing as they're trying to pull in this boat uh, as the as the as the waves are crashing in uh, and people are getting swept under this water and stuff. And by the way, these are, uh, while the, the, the family at the center of this movie uh, is fictional, uh, they were all just picked because of their, you know, qualities on screen or whatever. They're all kind of just random people. Uh, they are random people. They're, these weren't actors. They were people that did live in, in the area and put themselves out there to be, beat up by the waves and all that stuff. Anyway, watching the opening section of this movie and later sections too, I was like, man, the stunt work in this thing, these people are really putting their lives, you know, uh, in the hands of the elements here. Um, and it's much more exhilarating than something like the new mission impossible movie or something like that. Like, uh, it's very intense. Yeah. And, uh, and, and Flaherty's really good with, um, as I was saying a, minute, a while ago, um, kind of these scenes that the, of, of cutting between uh, the, the turbulent waters and then like really quick close close up shots of like a shark or the boat um, and then cutting back to two figures watching from the cliffs, you know, to, to see that, you know, hope that they're OK out there in the water. And it's a really great use of uh, of editing to, to kind of convey this uh, very turbulent and uh, treacherous action scene. Yeah, I mean, he's, he's like, he is one of the, the first great 
action filmmakers. I right, think. Really, seriously. Like, uh, have you seen Nanook of the North? I've not. Uh, you should. It's it's really good. It's also really fake. Um, but but there are action scenes in that. There's like a, a seal hunt that is is similarly really really well well shot and really exciting. That's uh, from 1922. Um, yeah, Flaherty is is like right up there with with Griffith and in his like kind of command of of silent film action filmmaking. Uh, and the film is, in addition to the editing, it's just, it's a beautiful movie. Just mm-hmm. the, 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 just the, the black and white cinematography and the, the waves, the opening shot, did the opening shot remind you of anything we've, we've talked about on the show before? Let me think. It's, Solaris? It's Solaris. <laughs> like, it's really it. obvious to me that, that Tarkovsky has seen this movie because it's, uh, the the boy is in like a, a tidal pool and you see the seaweed flowing back and forth and it is exactly the same shot as in Solaris. Uh, but, you know, it's in this fake documentary from 1934. Sure. Where, uh, whereas that movie was pure realism. Right. <laughs> uh, yeah, it, yeah, it's, it's, it is a, a very fascinating movie. And... Um, and he really did cast a really good like the the faces of these people. Um, you read so much into it uh, just just by the look on their face. This like you know hard fought determination um, and and just fortitude. It's it's yeah. It's a it's a very good movie. Yeah, <laughs> I really liked it. Have you not seen any other Flaherty? I've not. Uh, uh... He did a, a collaboration with F.W. Murnau called Taboo, which was, I think, the, the film he did just before this, uh, that uh, the collaboration didn't go very well, and, and Flaherty kind of left, and, and Murnau took it over. Um, that one's really good. And uh, Nunuk of the North, obviously, and, and Louisiana Story from 1948 is also uh, pretty awesome. Cool. Yeah, I'm interested in, uh, you know, Martin McDonough, the playwright and director of In Bruges and uh, Seven Psychopaths. Um, he has a play called The Cripple of Inishman, which is mm. based, it, it, it's, it takes place on the Aran Islands during the filming of this movie. And uh, it's part of a trilogy. I saw, I actually saw the second uh, play performed called The Lieutenant of Inishmore um, at the Act Theater in Seattle several years ago. And it was really solid. And so I, I would be really interested in reading that play and seeing how he plays with uh, the whole concept of this filming taking place uh, in that environment. So, uh, yeah. So, Man of Aaron, there you go. Um, instead of listening, you know, British Sea Power is apparently a band. But Sean and I are uh, too old and uh, jaded and unaware to know exactly what's up with them. Uh, they they apparently recorded a score for this in like 2009 or something like that that we could listen to now as a segue, but we're not. We're gonna listen to for for a fake portrait of Irish life. We're gonna listen to a fake Irish song by Ween. <laughs> it's the Ween Show, everybody. Hide your kids. Uh, so this is the song The Blarney Stone off of their best album The Mollusk
so that was a band called Ween that I know nothing about, but apparently you're a big fan. I am a half a fan. Like mm. I, I love. I, I love the album The Mollusk. I think it's a perfect record start to finish. I think it's one of the best records of the 90s. Uh, but Ween does kind of wear thin for me. They do a lot of genre pastiche stuff that like just kind of... They're very accomplished musicians, but um, some of their stuff just kind of annoys me. And then there's a lot of dick jokes and stuff that, like, I don't know. Not, not I'm not the biggest fan of. So, sp- <laughs> speaking of dick jokes, what what's Mike watching? <laughs> Man, our writers are getting a raise this week. Um, well, this is actually a combo here. This is uh, both what's Mike watching and what's Mike reading this week. Mm. Um, I'm in the middle of uh, a lengthy tome called Hollywood Cartoons, American Animation in Its Golden Age by Michael Barrier. That is a really interesting, uh, very comprehensive uh, history, obviously, of Hollywood cartoons. Um, you know, it's got... Not just Disney and Warner Brothers, but, you know, uh, the Fleischer Studios and all, all, all the ones in between. Uh, I'm very I, I'm enjoying it quite a bit, uh, although I disagree with some of his critical analysis. But uh, that's OK. That, that's healthy. Um, but that's, anyway, that's it's got often me on the this. case with with history, I find. Yeah. You know, it's not as egregious as, you know, genius of the system or something like that. Um, but. You know, he, he kind of don't go talking smack about Pinocchio, my friend. You know what I'm mm. saying? It's Pinocchio's good. Uh, yeah. Anyway, so I've been on this kick and wanting to 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 watch a lot of these early um, cartoons, and I haven't gotten to too many to uh, yet. But um, I did check out from Scarecrow uh, Disney's double disc set of the complete Oswald the Lucky Rabbit. Um, Oswald being the precursor for Mickey Mouse, um, but Walt Disney did not have the rights to the character. It was owned by the producer, um, even though Disney and uh, Bioworks were the ones that created the character. And that's what led to Mickey Mouse, because Walt was like, I will own all of my creations from here on out. But anyway, I watched the first Oswald the Lucky Rabbit cartoon, Trolley Troubles, from 1927. And uh, man, it's a hoot. It's a really fun cartoon. I wrote, I you know, it's funny. I the the longest reviews I write on Letterboxd are the ones for the seven minute cartoons. Like I don't know how that happens, but like I'll watch like a three hour movie and then have a review that's like three three words max, some some quip, some pun, and then I'll watch a seven minute cartoon and then spend like a half an hour writing like a three paragraph uh, review of it. But anyway. I was kind of expecting this very crude um, cartoon and it is crude in, in terms of it's, you know, it, it obviously is, is a silent cartoon. Um, it doesn't have a lot of animation in the background. It's very sparse and stuff, but you know, it's only a year before Mickey. So, you know, the animation's pretty fluid. There's some really interesting use of perspective and uh, what, what, character. Year, what year is it from? 27. Okay. 1927. Um, it was a fun little cartoon. I mean, you know, the, the plot is just, you know, there's a, a kind of a runaway train that's being, you know, steered by this, uh, you know, rabbit. But uh, it, but it's fun. You know, the one drawback is, at least is, is in this one, Oswald's personality doesn't really pop like Mickey Mouse's does, like right out the gates. Um, and that might be because there's no sound, so you don't get to hear him whistling or singing or whatever. Um, 
but it, yeah, it's a solid cartoon, and I'm I'm looking forward to seeing more of the Oswald stuff, at least the Disney iWorks ones, um, before they abandon ship. Um, but you, I but yes, have you seen uh, Balloon Land by Bob iWorks? Uh, Balloon Land. I don't think so. Uh, it's not, uh, yeah, it's a pincushion man in balloon land. I think. Oh, right. You talked about that. You yeah. saw that at uh, SIF this year. Yeah. I have not seen that. I think you will, you will really like that one. Yeah. Uh, it's, he, well, it's, he's probably on, it's probably on YouTube or something. But, oh, uh, I'm sure. And yeah. most of these are on YouTube. I'm just, yeah. you know, I want the best quality. What is Mickey Mouse's personality? Well, early on, Mickey Mouse is really interesting. Now, yeah. the problem is Mickey Mouse has been sanitized like since like 19... 19- God, I don't know, 37. <laughs> the first 10 years of Mickey Mouse is really interesting because he's he's kind of a rascal. Yeah. Uh, he gets into trouble. He's he's not afraid to drink a beer, smoke a cigarette, yeah, uh, you know, goof off a little bit, you know. Uh, but then he becomes this corporate icon and then he's completely sanitized. And that's why you get to see, that's why the rise of someone like Donald Duck comes around because Donald Duck can get angry. Mickey Mouse can't get angry anymore, you know. But in the early Disney cartoons, Mickey Mouse, he could he could put up a fight. I, I am forced to to often watch the the current uh, Disney Channel series, the Mickey Mouse Clubhouse, mm. and it is it is interesting in the sense that not even Donald Duck is an antagonist anymore. Like there, oh. there are no antagonists. Like they oh. are, they are all the same. They're all very friendly. They're all very helpful. Even even Pete. Is oh. is a good guy, and it's uh, it's disturbing. Like there are no villains on that show. Like I remember watching the watching the Mickey Mouse Club, like the old Mickey Mouse Club, uh, and then the new Mickey Mouse Club that they did in the eighties. Like Donald Duck was always Mickey's antagonist. He was like always trying to steal credit. He was always you know upset right. that it was the Mickey Mouse Club and not the Donald Duck Club. Right, the song, the song, yeah. the, the iconic song. He's like, Donald Duck! Yeah. <laughs> it, it, that is not the case anymore. Oh, that's a, that for shame. Because, yeah. yeah, oh, that, well, and one of my favorite, you know, talking about Pete, one of my favorite Disney cartoons of all time is uh, Two Gun Mickey, which is this just fantastic what, seven minute Western. And it's great because Mickey is this, you know, uh, white hatted, you know, uh, hero and 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 pete is just the epitome of scene chewing villainy and it's fantastic oh yeah, i'm i'm a little distressed at the lack of content of conflict in in children's programming and maybe it's because i was raised on on violence and desensitized from a very early age right but but there's there's none of it in any of these kid shows like it's all it's also completely harmless and it's 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 frustrating to me so my kids don't want to watch anything with any any kind of conflict in it because it's scary that's that's unfortunate we'll talk about lies right i mean yeah (laughs) i mean who's perpetuating the lies now it's these kids shows right i mean yeah exactly like i you know i watched i watched all kinds of of crazy stuff when i was a kid and i was never afraid of the villain in a show but my my daughter and half of it is she's faking and half of it i don't i don't know she 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 will refuse to watch any movie with like uh, a witch in it or she won't watch star wars because she thinks it's going to be scary because robots are scary 
but it's not scary or rather it's a movie and you shouldn't be scared of movies. Right. So, and I haven't, and I haven't been able to convince her of that fact. And I think a lot of it, cause she's not a fearful person. Like she is incredibly not scared of she's anything. She's not like you. Like no. you're not scared of movies, but you're scared of reality. Right. And she right. is the opposite. And I don't, and I don't really know what to do about that. Yeah. I feel like that's going to, uh, that could blow up in her face. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. So I don't know. Like, and, and I, I wonder if, if part of it is, is these conflict free cartoons. Cause when I watched Mickey Mouse cartoons, there was always, there was always a villain. There was like Mickey what? would, would, would fight with the, the wolf over Minnie and, you know, he would triumph or, you know, something like that. There would be like an actual action with a right. good guy and a bad guy. And, you know, comic violence, but still violence that he would overcome. Right. And now it's all like, you know, group problem solving with like a, a horrifying flying robot that magically produces helpful items. <laughs> Weird. Yeah. Uh, yeah. My only uh, exposure to the Mickey Mouse Clubhouse is uh, seeing the pa- like a bunch of packaging at the grocery store is like branded mickey mouse clubhouse like approved or something like that sure and yeah i mean you know I, i'm not one to necessarily say all cgi is terrible or all you know computer animation is terrible obviously i i'm not that kind of person but i really don't like the character designs it's very it's very cheap it's very cheaply done yeah uh, which is a lot of the the Disney shows. Like some some of them are better quality than others, but a lot of them are very very obviously cheap. But you know, I mean, they're still not as cheap as the cartoons that I was watching in the nineteen eighties. Right. So. Yeah, I mean, uh, I'm really going to complain about the animation. Right, style. Transformers or something like that. Yeah. GI Joe. Oh yeah. my gosh. Yeah, absolutely. Like I I, le- I learned about like the cheapness of animation in watching Scooby Doo cartoons. Right. When at like age six, I realized that they're just reusing the same backgrounds over and over. <laughs> right. Oh, there goes the moon again. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah. Well, ta- let's talk about uh, trickery a little bit more here. Okay. Um, what, you know, t- going with the Flaherty and, and stuff, and we talked about F for fake, so that's now excluded. And you said prior to the show, no spinal tap. Yeah. So what's your... To you, and this is a kind of an open-ended uh, kind of term, but what what is your essential pseudo documentary or document documentary that maybe plays a little fast and loose with the facts? Uh, well, the one the the obvious one that came to mind for me is uh, one that I've talked about before on the show, and it's uh, Peter Watkins' La Commune, Paris, eighteen seventy one, which was on my uh, sight and sound top ten one of the the ones that we've done we have the next episode coming up and this is a uh it's a six hour documentary about the paris commune in 1871 uh this kind of uh, uh revolt against the the bourgeois the bourgeoisie in in paris that took place and, and they took control of the city for a couple of months and were eventually violently repressed and uh Watkins stages the whole thing in this giant kind of warehouse stage where he has the set built up and he has all these these actors most of whom are are non-actors uh playing various parts of people in the commune and then also as is uh 
kind of Watkins traditional approach to these kind of things, he films it like it's a television news report. So he actually has like news reporters with microphones going around like reporting on the scene of the Paris Commune like they would if there was TV news in 1871. Mm. And as the film goes on, uh, it becomes less and less about the actual historical events that, that occurred as it is about how the actors who are playing these parts feel about the act of performing about this history, what they, what they've learned through this process, how it applies to their own lives and their, and you know, what they think about the world. And it's, it's, uh, becomes like this, this really interesting interplay between historical fact and the value of recreating history and of learning history and what history means to us in the present. It's, it's one of my favorite movies. Obviously, it was in the Sight and Sound list. And I think it's like the best example of what you can do in making fake history on film and, and still it, conveying historical truth. And it's one that I promised you I would watch. Three years ago. I am still working on getting <laughs> myself ready for it. I want to see it. I really do. Yeah. I, I, I really, really do. That sounds wonderful. Uh, Jonathan Rosenbaum just, just this week uh, reposted his 2002 essay on the film. And it's, it's really good. Even if you haven't seen the movie, uh, the, the essay uh, takes much less than, than six hours to read. So <laughs> I definitely recommend that. Nice. Nice. Maybe we can link to that in the notes for the show. Yeah. Uh, what What is your pick? Well, my pick is, uh, you know, the kind of uh, heir to the thrones in, uh, of Flaherty, in a way, is uh, Werner Herzog, who is, throughout his career, um, you know, his career going back to the 70s, he's made uh, countless documentaries. Uh, and... Werner Herzog is one that will firmly plant himself in the in the camp of uh, I don't care if stuff is fake uh, as long as I'm getting towards the ecstatic truth. Um, I, I was hoping we would get through this whole discussion of Man of Aaron without uttering the phrase ecstatic truth. Well, we did. We're now in a different segment of the show, Sean. Uh, Welcome to the... Uh, 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 <laughs> <laughs> So Werner Herzog, you know, has has been taken to task for that. Uh, he doesn't care. I don't care. Um, and and usually with his movies, uh, well, actually, some of them. I think the White Diamond is is wholly fabricated or pretty close to it. But oftentimes it's little things that, uh, just to to make it more cinematic or something like that. For example, the end of. Um, the Cave of Forgotten Dreams, he adds this coda about albino alligators, which is a great scene. Mm -hmm. Totally made up. <laughs> Has sure. nothing to do with anything that comes before it, but it kind of ties everything in a kind of weird bow um, that I really, really enjoy. And I don't care whether it's fake or not. But the one that I think of, and, and I think, as far as I know, majority of the film, the, the premise of the film, Absolutely real. Absolutely happened. Uh, Little Dieter Needs to Fly, which is his uh, 1997 film uh, about Dieter Dengler, who is a, a pilot who is captured um, in Vietnam. Uh, they made a, a feature film uh, a decade later with Christian Bale called Rescue Don. Same story. But what, I, what always sticks in my head is... Herzog talking about there's a scene where Dieter who's kind of got PTSD from this and he's and he's got all of these kind of 
quirks that he's brought with him after he's been released from this uh, this prison and escaped. From he's prison. escaped. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he's escaped and he's back to normal life, so to speak. But he's got all of these kind of odd habits. Um, and there's one where he gets out of his car, and every time he gets out of his car, he has to like open the door or he has to like jiggle the handle of the car like multiple times before he can do anything kind of like this OCD thing. Uh, and it's, and it's the moment that in the movie kind of sticks in your head and uh, Herzog has said, yeah, I just thought that was a cool idea. So I told Dieter to do it and he said, okay, <laughs> and threw it in his movie. So, uh, but regardless the movie, whether or not some of it is fabricated is great. Um, and I like Werner Herzog. So there, I, I, ha I haven't seen it. I have seen Rescue Dawn, which which I liked. I like Rescue Dawn a lot. Yeah, it's very yeah, good. It's a good movie. Um, it really is. Um, yeah. yeah. So now we're going to turn our attentions to our person of the week, who is it, like Herzog and auteur, uh, and someone that I don't know if we've ever talked about him on the show before. <laughs> well, we talked about one of his movies on the show. I'm just kidding. Oh. Uh, we talk about him like every week. Everybody on the count of three, we'll all say it together, okay? And it's not Johnny Toe, okay? Oh wow, this is <laughs> that's what everyone was thinking. I know, but now they're like, wait, who else are we talking? Who, who's about? the other one? Who's the other one, Sean? <laughs> we can't shut up about. It's Hong Sang Soo, everybody. Hong Sang Soo. Uh, Hong Sang Soo, and and the reason we're talking about Hong Sang Soo, even though Hong Sang Soo has nothing to do with this episode of the show. Um, or any more so than any other episode of the show, uh, is that Hong Sang Soo uh, recently released a movie that played, uh, and one it played Venice, right? Is this what we're talking about? Locarno. Locarno. Excuse me, I don't know what's going on. Uh, oh, it has a great title too. What is it called again? Uh, right then, wrong now. Right. right now, wrong then. Something right now, like wrong then. That's right. That's right. 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 Yes. Correct. Uh, and it won. Yes. Best, best film. Yes. At, at La Carno. <laughs> right. We, obviously, we have not seen it. Uh, it has not made its way over here yet, so we can't, we can't say whether or not... Well, I'm sure Sean can say whether or not it's, it's, it's worthy well, of we're, that we're, accolade. We're but, hoping it'll, it'll come to Vancouver since all of the rest of his films play there. But right. it hasn't been announced yet. Right. So hopefully uh, in a month's time... Are we going to be there in a month? It's a month from now. We're leaving in a month. Yeah, wow. uh, it's like five weeks from Friday. Yeah, all right. Um, yeah. Hopefully we will see that. But uh, he's our person. And I think we may have done him as a person before, but you know what? I didn't have anything to say about Robert Flaherty, so what the hell. Hong Sang Soo. Sean, let's talk about Hong Sang Soo. Okay. What do you want to talk about? Uh, <laughs> I can hear the giddiness in your voice. <laughs> What, what do you want to talk about? What, which movie does he want to know? What do you want to know? Uh, what do you want to know? Well, I mean, uh, I, think, I think Hong has an interesting relation to, to realism in his films because uh, they're, they're composed of very long takes uh, of people acting supposedly natural. Uh, a lot of, there's a lot of drinking scenes in his movies, for example, and the actors are actually drinking and they're getting drunk. Uh, there's a, a great interview with him on uh, I think it was on movie published this week where he, where he talks about like the number of takes that he has to do and 
So it's, you know, some, a lot of his shots are really long, so sometimes they have to do seven or eight takes, except for the ones where the actors are drinking in actuality, then they can only do a couple of takes because the actors get too drunk. Yes. Uh, a lot of drunks. So, I mean, the, the movies are, are shot naturalistically. Uh, they deal with kind of everyday, normal human interactions. He doesn't make genre films. He doesn't make period films. Yet they have these, these really artificial, phony structures imposed upon them. And, I mean, would, would you ever describe Hong as a naturalistic filmmaker, as a realistic filmmaker? No. Be- because of those framing devices, right? Because right. I mean, yeah, and... because it because it's 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 focused so intently on the construction or the nature of narrative, mm-hmm. and and it's it's so much more about that kind of stuff than it is about the surface level stuff that you see. Like if you just if you just like put like five random clips of his movies up, you might think, oh yes. But but without the the scripts, these movies are nothing. You see, I think I think that's true. But I think the 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 structural play that his films going on they're they're an end of itself in itself. There, it's it's like fun to see something like the day he arrives and and have like scenes repeated over and over again, or to try and figure out you know, try and figure out the structure of, of some of his films. Some of them are, are so complicated and trying to figure out like the separation between dream and reality and, and different connections between things and try and, and piece it together. It's just fun to do that. But on the other hand, I think uh, that that would be meaningless if those structures weren't also saying something compelling about about real life. Oh, well, I'm not disputing that. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm, I, yeah, they're absolutely tied to reality but but when i think of naturalistic cinema i think of stuff that is like that is that is all the latter you know what i'm saying like that doesn't have uh this extra layer or that that doesn't play around with um kind of continuity or something like that of course of course the the experiences that are happening and all those things i think are obviously based in reality and 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 you know uh it seems like for the most part pretty close to home for hong because oftentimes it's a it's a filmmaker uh, you know character is a filmmaker or a teacher or something like that um but no i, I but I, I i think my definition of naturalistic would not encompass something as as uh varied as what's going on here yeah, and I think I think I think most people agree, would agree with you, and I think I probably would agree with you as well. But I, I'm wondering why that should be the case. Like, why why does the 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 structure dictate realism? Shouldn't it be the the content? Well, this goes back to our discussion earlier, and uh, I mean, I, I right, feel... I'm, like, I'm trying to. I'm trying to tie it all together. <laughs> I understand. I, I feel like that would make it too diffuse. I think that like, because then you could, then you could call so many disparate things naturalistic mm-hmm. um, that it would kind of at least lose all meaning in a way. And, but uh, we were talking and, and we, we couldn't think of an example of a film that we liked that we thought was false. 
uh, and and that by that falseness we we were we were talking about you know its falseness in its depiction of 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 humanity of of reality of of life. Sound um, of music. <laughs> we did not like the sound of music, but that is that is a great example of a movie that is. I don't know if that movie lies so much as it is, you know, incomplete and pointless. Uh, but we we talked about that. <laughs> Sorry, <time>. Melissa. Uh, <laughs> Uh, so if, if that is like the, one of the, the defining things that makes a movie good or bad, whether or not it, it is truthful or lies, uh, shouldn't that be more important than the way the story is told? Like the truth or falseness of the story should be the determinative thing on whether or not it is realistic and not the nature of the narrative. Uh, I mean, maybe, but like a a scene that is, that is one take of two actors talking and it's like total bullshit versus a scene that is, you know, cut of discontinuous, uh, shots of actors that are, that are saying, you know, truthful things about the human experience. I think we're arguing semantics here because, yeah, uh, yes, absolutely. Uh, yeah. And so, cause yeah, the bullshit can be naturalistic bullshit. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And so, right. yeah, if you want to, if you want to, you know, there's a great Minutemen song, um, on their first EP that ends with this chant, uh, burn all your dictionaries. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? Cause like words, words can never quite capture, accurately capture what you're trying to convey. And I feel like that's where we're at now at this part where at this point where we're just like burn your dictionaries because yes, I see your argument. I completely see your argument. Um, but you're, but you're coming from like, we're, I think we're starting from two different points here. Sure. And so I, I don't know if I can necessarily, I see where you're coming from, but I don't think I can get to where you're at because my definition is different than yours. Did you see, uh, uh, the Olivier Sayas film, something in the air? No, I didn't. I, I had it checked out, but I never got around to it. Uh, there's there's a scene in it where the the young uh, Asayas stand-in is like a, a teenager, and he's at uh, like this left wing rally where they're showing a a documentary, a propaganda film that they have made about like poor people somewhere in the world, and then there's a debate after the movie as they're discussing it on whether or not the the film's form is too bourgeois to convey a revolutionary message that uh, the argument is that a revolutionary cinema needs a revolutionary form. Mm -hmm. And I I could not disagree with that more. And it's the same kind of thing. I I don't think that the form is determinative of the, the truth or falseness of the work. I agree with that. Absolutely. I totally, yeah, 100%. And so I think I think that I think that is is similar to this discussion of 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 Hong and whether or not his his cinema is realistic or not. And with Man of Aaron, if it, it's the form of an ethnographic documentary, but its its content is something that is counter to that, but it's still true. Right. Like so the, the the point is not is not the form genre structure that is all fine and good but the essential truth of a of a work of art comes from somewhere else i think agreed good i'm glad we were able to settle that 
False naturalism. False naturalism that conveys a uh, more honest truth. <laughs> uh, yes. No. I, I I know what you're saying, and I and I and I think that was clear, and and it makes sense. I just think that uh, for for years now, I've used naturalistic in terms that are not. Like to me, naturalistic does not mean true or false. You know what I mean? It doesn't. Sure. Ne- it doesn't mean truth. Those are two separate things. Okay. <laughs> anyway, congratulations, Hong. Uh, <laughs> we hope to see you in Vancouver. Uh, and how, how great would it be if he was actually there? <laughs> I, fuck yeah! I'll go drinking with him. I haven't gotten drunk in. You know, I, your 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 daughter's fourth birthday party is going to be the first time I've been drunk in like eight years or so. But I may have to follow that quickly up with the getting drunk with Hong Sang Soo. If he actually showed up in Vancouver, the the line of people wanting to drink with him would be so long. No, you don't know my luck, man. Like I would like be like you would be like, hey, Mike, let's go hang out with these film nerds that I know, and I'd be like, that's that's no, that's not that's the bunk. I, I ain't down with that. <laughs> and I would like go, you know, wandering the streets lonely, and I would end up in this tiny little place, and Hong Sang Soo's in there, and I'm like, what's up? And he's like, what's up? And then you know, by the end of the night, we're we're puking on each other's shoes. That seems likely. <laughs> hey, I got I got a direct line. I Bong Joon Ho, I could just go straight to him, and then we get the digits going. It's it's good. It's good to go. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, uh, we're gonna hear a little clip now um, from Neo Tokyo, which is the uh, the final film we'll be discussing today. Um, did the version you watched was it in English or was it in Japanese? It was in Japanese. Subtitled. Well, good for you. Oh, you watched it dubbed? Well, I, the version I got from Scarecrow was only in English. Oh, man. Scary. That's horseshit. I'm sorry. Blame yeah. Scarecrow. Yeah. Um, oh, I will. I'm going to take it up with management. <laughs> you should. Uh, well, here's a clip, I guess, in Japanese from Neo Tokyo.
All right, so speaking of realistic in form, we have the <laughs> uh, the three-part uh, Japanese animated anthology film, Neo Tokyo, which was released in 1987 and was produced by the uh, the Madhouse Studio. And uh, it's it's in three sections, each with a different director. The the directors uh, uh, the director of the first part is Rintaro. Uh, the second part is by Yoshiaki Kawajiri, and the third part is by Kasuhiro Otomo, uh, all three of whom uh, went on to make uh, very famous animes uh, later in their careers. Uh, the movie's uh, it's only 50 minutes long, and it has it opens with the the kind of the frame story, which is also the first part directed by. Uh, Rintaro. That is uh, the least realistic of all of the three parts. It basically takes place inside of the mind of a small girl as she plays hide-and-seek with her cat and eventually she and the cat literally go through a looking glass into this uh, really creepy and kind of scary uh, circus that they find a uh, a giant clown that shows them a screen, and on the screen plays the next two films. Uh, the The second one uh, is called uh, Running Man, and it's about a uh, a futuristic racer who has telekinetic powers, which he uses to destroy his uh, opponents in the race, and eventually ends up destroying himself. And then uh, after that, uh, he uh, has to race against ghosts. And then <laughs> the uh, the third part is a kind of variation on Sorcerer's Apprentice with a, uh, a very short uh, functionary sent to uh, this uh, 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 city being built by robots, and the robots won't uh, stop working, uh, even though he tells them to. And, uh, yeah. And that's it. That's it. In and out. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, we've never talked about anime on the show before. I think the only other animated film we've talked about is, uh, Wally. And, and neither of us, as far as I know, are big anime people. So we are probably not qualified to discuss this film at all, but we're going to do it anyway. Uh, what, what did you think? I thought it was okay. Yeah. Um, I think this suffers, at least for, in my my viewing, it suffers from uh, putting the most interesting short at the beginning. Um, I watching Rintaro's short Labyrinth um, with the girl and her cat. Um, I was just like, like at first I was like, "Whoa, what's going on here?" But then I was like, "Okay, this is just gonna be insane, and I'm just gonna roll with it." Like I don't need a coherent plot, like. I can just ha- like hang with some impressionistic, weird, you know, clowns and crazy hallways, and all of a sudden it's like an '80s music video, and um, and I was like, yeah. And then the two others, they get increasingly more straightforward. Yes. Uh, which I think is to the detriment of the story. Maybe it's not. I don't know. I don't know how it would play in reverse, to be honest with you. But like, I was, I, I tuned my brain to insanity. And then I was brought back down to earth over the success of shorts and was like, okay, that was okay. You know what I mean? Uh, yeah, they become, they become progressively more, more linear and more obvious, more, more realistic and more dialogue driven. Right. Yeah. There's like no dialogue. Well, the dialogue, there's like the dialogue in the first one is literally like Cicero, your dad named you Cicero. 
mm-hmm. and then that's it. Uh, and then yeah, and then the, there's a weird narrator, uh, like a pulp narrator, uh, who's doing a report on the um, the race car driver in the second one. So he kind of has like a running commentary about that. Um, but even that is like leaving out what is actually going on. Like right. he's he's talking about what he's seen, but. I mean, he's he's talking about like the background of of the guy who's racing, and that he's racing, but he doesn't actually tell you what's going on as he's like, you know, freaking out, and and it's like these horrifying you know close ups of the racer's face as like his eyes bulge out and he opens his mouth and like a silent scream, and it's, it's really right. disturbing and really really cool. Yes. Uh, he's not he's not explaining that at all. No, no, no. We just see him his horrified reaction to the events that are transpiring right um yeah and then the third one is is very conventional in terms of its uh script and and stuff like that so so yeah it was it was kind of an experience of deflation you know um not to say that there's not good stuff in the other ones like i do like that futuristic race setting Mm -hmm. Uh, i think that i think that short actually overstays its welcome more than any other just because a lot of it is really repetitive Uh, shots of uh, glass being broken, you know, the controls on his, on different cars being split um, pieces of the cars breaking off and stuff. Um, It just kind of does that over and over and over again. And we kind of get it, you know, after a while, I mean, there's cool stuff in it too. He starts bleeding out of his, every pore in his face. Yeah. Uh, It's like, it's, it's grueling and it's, and it's exhausting, which is, which is kind of the point, but it's also like unpleasant. Yeah, it's awesome. Yeah, I kind of got a headache. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, I mean, yeah. I, I think that's what it's like going for, but it's, yeah. still, it's still not Still fun. not great, yeah. Um, yeah, I, I agree with you that the, the third one is is the least interesting of them. Yeah. Uh, it's it's fine. I mean, it's, it's kind of funny, but you know, you know exactly what the joke is. And, and when you, when it gets to the punchline, it's like not a, a shock at all. The, right. the final image is really cool. This kind of, uh, you know, it's, it's almost like a, a Lovecraftian kind of beast that the guy has to, to go and, and confront and the movie fades out on that. That that's kind of neat, but, uh, right. Right. But up until then it's, it's pretty, uh, it's pretty rote. Yeah. And, and, and that's, and that's another problem at the end. It hints at something more interesting, but then leaves it hanging. And then, you know, and then we go cycle back to the, the first one, uh, just for a very brief coda. Um, and that's great. The whole, the whole, uh, circus procession. Um, and, and the animation in that sequence is the most stylized, um, it, it, most idiosyncratic, so to speak. Like the one in the last one is is the most that I picture as anime style, I guess. Yeah, uh, it's like it it is, it is very progressive in the way it moves along. Like like the first one is is the most abstract. It's the most silent. It's the most stylized. It's it's the you know the most kind of emotionally involving. And then it gets it gets less and less so as it as it goes on, uh, but I really like the the first two shorts, and then the third one is fine. So that leaves me thinking that it this is a pretty good movie. <laughs> 
See, I would, I would, be, I would say I really like the first one, and then I thought the other two were okay. Uh, uh, so I think it's an okay movie, a pretty you, okay movie. Do you think they they play together as a as a cohesive whole, kind of thematically? Because uh, it seemed it seemed to me that they do. In well, there, in a weird sense, like I like I, I hinted at this on on Letterbox, which I haven't seen you write a Letterbox review of this yet, which is very disturbing for me. But it <laughs> it seems like like a warning against against watching, wanting, or doing things. Um, well, they're all based on short stories by the same person, Taku uh, Mayamura, mm-hmm. um, and w- from a collection that came out the year before, um, and so they have that you know, DNA in them. Um, to be honest, I don't see it. Okay. I, yeah, I honestly, I don't, I, I mean, I guess I could make a stretch for the, the second and the third one, but the, the first one to me was so off the rails that I wasn't even thinking in terms of story at that point. Yeah, but I mean, it it seems to me that 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 there is this girl who gets lost in her own imagination and lost in her own stories, and and it it is a mather, it's a labyrinth, it's a maze, and and she doesn't get out. And in the end of it, she's like, you know, dancing along with these phantoms in like a seventh seal kind of thing. Uh, that seems pretty dire to me. And then the the second one is this this racer is so obsessed with winning that he is like able to actually like project out and defeat the other racers with like his mind like his his desire to to win is so strong that not only does he like develop telekinesis but he also keeps racing after he's dead like his will continues to keep going and going and going you know years after you know the track is all shut down like he's still locked in this desire to win and then 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 the third one is you know the the doing of things like the the functionary has a job he has to go and tell the robots to stop doing things and when he finally does he learns that he should have not done anything <laughs> right I, I can see the ties between the the second and the third one i think the first one um i didn't like i was kind of I was a little more optimistic about her journey into her mind, even though it was scary and there was weird stuff going on. Um, I, I didn't see the cautionary tale of, of don't, you know, I didn't, I didn't see the warning label on, yeah. on, on that one. Well, that's, so that's how I read the ending. Like, and, and also the fact that like these, the other two shorts are like horrifying things for a little girl to be, you know, imagining. <laughs> You're saying that, that she's conceiving the other stories. Yeah, well, if the whole thing is taking place inside her mind, then the clown is like inside her mind, and the screen that the clown is showing her is a story from within her own psyche. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, uh, I, I don't see. I don't know if that's necessarily because we see the labyrinth before we get into her story. So, is it necessarily the labyrinth of her mind that the whole thing is being projected upon? I, don't I, I assume so. I mean, uh, the other explanation is that an evil clown has kidnapped a little girl and is showing her weird-ass anime. 
Well, or, or the other one is these three guys wanted to make some short films and decided to just throw them all together. There's also that. Oh, um, well, that's um, not how film criticism works, Mike. The, the, <laughs> I'm, I'm sick of pulling stuff out of my ass. The, the, second, the second story, actually, you know what it, whose writing, whose work it reminded me of the most? No. It really reminded me of Rod Serling. It's a, it, it really felt like a Twilight Zone where it's such a Twilight Zone concept of, sure. of, of the ghost driver, you know, the guy that was so driven that, you know, he couldn't stop. And uh, and there's a lot of it felt very Twilight Zone to me on that one. Um, yeah, I think I think the third one has has that element, too. There's there's quite a few Twilight Zones that are just like an elaborate build up to a, a fairly obvious punchline. Right. A, a kind of cruel joke or whatever. Yeah. 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 So, uh, what what is your experience with anime? I mean, we we've we've talked about Ghibli, uh, we've talked about other, you know, Disney, obviously Pixar. Uh, what about like the the sci-fi anime that is the anime that people think about? Uh, stuff like Akira or Ghost in the Shell. Uh, I don't know any of that stuff. Yeah. Like, yeah, I mean, I've seen a couple of um, other some you know some non ghibli japanese animated stuff but it's like very fleeting i've seen millennium actress which is also a madhouse mm-hmm. film um and yeah, the girls... this 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 uh as you mentioned this the studio madhouse uh in addition to uh these three guys was also the home of uh of satoshi khan uh who did millennium actress and uh perfect blue uh paprika and... Paprika, and also uh, uh, Mamoru Husada, who did uh, uh, Wolf Children, uh, the movie I, I right. Really oh, I see. Yeah, I, I saw Wolf Children. Yep. Yeah, and also like the girl who leapt through time and uh, uh, Summer Wars. Uh, so you know a lot of the the big names in Japanese animation over the last thirty years are are connected with this studio. Mm-hmm. And these guys themselves went on to between them they directed uh, Akira, Metropolis, Ninja Scroll, uh, this movie X that I saw like 15 years ago and really did not like. Um, Akira is the big one, obviously. Right. Uh, yeah, I've not seen any of those, hmm. none whatsoever. So I've got yeah, I'm I'm really on shaky ground here. Hmm. <laughs> um, yeah, I I, I have. Despite my previous uh, segment where I was talking about cartoons and how much I love them, uh, this is definitely and I'm just so overwhelmed, you know, like there's so much out there. And I know that I could just go to an expert and they'd be like, well, watch obviously Akira, you know, but then they could give me five movies to start with and go from there. But there's always that, you know, I don't know. I see all that stuff come through the library and I just like they're all in multi volumes and there's like, I don't know what the hell's going on there. Well, there's like the there's the the TV series and there's also films, right? Which makes it difficult because because there is so much and uh, it is it is a a vast genre and I've only seen you know a few of the 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 films or or, or TV shows. Uh, you really should see Akira though. I I want to. I'm not saying I, I'm, but like you know like like last week, I think. Dragon Ball Z Resurrection F or something just came out. Yeah. Uh, what the what the hell is that? You know uh, what I mean? It's it's a movie based on a TV series, I guess. I don't know. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm my like ignorance... I, I feel like those are that kind of that kind of stuff is is more kind of your your run of the mill you know crowd pleasing stuff. 
whereas uh, the Neo Tokyo type stuff is more your your highbrow, aiming for the anime art house crowd. Right, right. Uh, yeah, and I mean, I've liked the stuff. You know, I I haven't flipped for any of the stuff that I've seen. Like you, you really responded to Wolf Children, and I liked mm-hmm. it. I, um, but I didn't I didn't go uh, over the moon for that one. Um, and I, I remember liking Millennium Actress. It reminded me of David Lynch a little bit and stuff. But yeah, nothing. I, I've liked what I've seen, but I've never been completely over o- overwhelmed by him. Yeah, uh, stuff like uh, like Akira, Ghost in the Shell, uh, Neon Genesis Evangelion uh, is stuff that I uh, watched like 15 years ago or so. I watched. I was like in an anime phase for a while, and I was watching a bunch of stuff like this. And I could never decide if the stuff was was actually really smart or if it was just pseudo smart. Mm. Uh, it tends it they get they they the ones that I've seen at least kind of start naturalistically and then get increasingly abstract. And either it's a an issue of the translation or just an intentional kind of vagueness, but they kind of twist in on themselves and become like these weird philosophical meditations about the relationship between humanity and technology with like the, the atom bomb hanging over them all that uh, is interesting, but I'm never quite sure if the people who are writing it are actually smart. (laughs) So, I mean, an anime fan, I'm sure will tell you that they are. But I, sure. don't, I don't know. But you don't trust anime fans. Uh, yeah. Like most uh, genre film fans, they are... are uh, watch, what you, watch where you go here, Sean. Uh, they are great cinephiles. <laughs> you stuck the landing on that one. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, I, yeah, I hope to in the next year or so, uh, you know, at least dip my toes in some of the, the waters there, the, at least the, the really important ones, uh, like Akira and stuff like that. Well, you know, say what you will about Ween. They, they tend to have a song for uh, every occasion. So we had the Blarney Stone earlier in the show, and now we've got a song off of their second best record, in my opinion, uh, 12 Country Greats. Uh, this is a song called Japanese Cowboy. Like a Japanese cowboy Or a brother on skates Like a blizzard in Georgia Or a train running late I call out your name, girl In the heat of the night And nobody answers Cause something ain't right Breakfast at Shoney's at $2.99. Save me some money, eased up my mind. I'm walking in circles and feeling the pain. I'm tossing and turning and crying in vain. Like a Japanese cowboy Or a brother on skates 
like a blizzard in Georgia or a train running late. I call out your name, girl, in the heat of the night, and nobody answers. Cause something ain't right. Here we go. Yeah, speaking of, of Japanese cowboys, we made it all the way through that anime discussion without talking about Cowboy Bebop, which you should also watch because it's awesome. I know, I know. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> next time on the show is our annual Sight and Sound Top 10 episode, which we've done uh, two episodes before, yes. I believe. And the, the whole point is that every year we pick 10 films that would go on a hypothetical sight and sound ballot. And then in, uh, when the new poll comes out in 2022, we will have a top 100 films made up of sight and sound top tens. Did you catch that? Yeah. And, uh, we don't actually have like, uh, uh, the proper amount of films on our list so far because uh, you didn't follow the rules one year and and picked uh, two uh, movies multiple times. The Red Shoes is that good yeah. to be listed twice. So the, the films we, we currently have are on a list on, on Letterboxd, and uh, we have 54 films because some of them are ones that, that we both picked and some are the ones that you picked multiple years. But I guess we'll, we'll kind of go, go ahead and read off what we have right now. And then we're going to pick 10 new films each uh, on the next episode. So you want to you start reading off what we got so far? Oh, I'm starting here? Yes. Sure. Okay, so uh, Seven Samurai, Chungking Express, Sunrise, A Song of Two Humans, Casablanca, Pierre Lefou. Then uh, Night of the Hunter, La Commune, Paris, 1871, Days of Heaven, Rio Bravo, The Red Shoes. Uh, the Musketeers of Pig Alley, The Docks of New York, The Rules of the Game, Singing in the Rain, Vertigo. An, an Autumn Afternoon, Playtime, Annie Hall, Good Men, Good Women, and The Big Lebowski. Oki's Movie, Oxhide 2, uh, Beau Travail. Is that how you say it? Beau Travai. <laughs> Beau Travai. Only Yesterday, clearly not on my list. Only Yesterday, The 36th Chamber of Shaolin. And Touch of Evil, The Searchers, A Duck Amuck, The Bandwagon, and The Shop Around the Corner. Sherlock Jr., Duck Soup, Walt Disney's Snow White and the Seven Dwarves, Rear Window, Once Upon a Time in the West. Uh, Pennies from Heaven, In the Mood for Love, The New World, of course. Celine and Julie Go Boating, and The Blue Angel. The Gold Rush, Strange Brew. <laughs> I forgot to pick Strange Brew. That was awesome. Uh, Ikaru, uh, Secret Sunshine, Blanca Nieves. Uh, the Big Sleep, uh, Nosferatu, A uh, Symphony of Horror, uh, Notorious, Kiki's Delivery Service, and Eraserhead. Safety Last, Trouble in Paradise, Back to the Future, and Quentin Tarantino's Death Proof. Yeah, you know, I kind of want you to pick like two extra films this time, just so you'll have the proper 100 when 2022 rolls around. Well, I'll see what I can do. Yeah. Anyway, uh, we'll, we'll have 10 new films each at least, 
on the next episode, and we are going to talk about those films, and that will be fun. Yes, Maybe. and one of the films that will not be on the list, uh, because it's already on the list, mm-hmm. uh, is uh, Vertigo, which is playing in San Francisco. Now, this is it. You always say when we do Seattle screen scene, every week there's a Hitchcock movie playing somewhere, uh, and it's true. It's true. So sometimes you gotta you gotta add a little spice to to get you enticed to go see it. So the Castro Theater in San Francisco will be playing Vertigo, which is set in San Francisco, in seventy millimeter, mind you. Friday, September fourth through Monday, September seventh, they're doing shows like three or four shows a day. Uh, holy cow, that sounds awesome! Ah, that's that that sounds good. That is a good movie. You should go see it. Uh, <laughs> uh, playing in, in Vancouver, uh, going on right now is, uh, they have like a, a film noir festival at the, uh, the, uh, Cinematheque up there. And as a little, like a, a sidebar to that, they have something called the psycho Western, which is basically a pair of amazing movies. Uh, the first is a 35 millimeter print of Fritz Lang's Ranch Notorious with, uh, Marlena Dietrich. And then the other is a film that might show up on a uh, future sight and sound list from us, uh, Nicholas Ray's Johnny Guitar. Yeah, boy. And uh, Ranch and Notorious, uh, I think they both played together on like Friday night. But uh, coming up tomorrow, as we're recording this, uh, Sunday the 23rd is the Ranch and Notorious uh, print. And then on Monday the 24th is Johnny Guitar. And it's not a print, it's DCP, but it's Johnny Guitar. And if you haven't seen it you have to and if you have seen it you have to see it again because it is amazing them's the rules yep we didn't make them yep we just abide by them Mm -hmm. if you are on the internet congratulations uh you should spend some time going to the george sanders show.blogspot.com uh where we post all of our shows they're all on there i think are they all on there they are hey all right uh we have twitter uh, at Geo Sanders Show is our handle. You can email us at the George Sanders Show at gmail.com. And we also do some writing about movies and stuff at seattlescreenscene.com. And I think that's it. I think so. Okay. Well, uh, that's it for the ween this time around. We're gonna we're gonna take you out in style like we we should do every every show, uh, except when we're feeling a little frisky. So here's George Sanders singing us away. Uh, we'll see you next time for the a special sight and sound show. And then, uh, then our special Vancouver show, and then we'll be in Vancouver and then we'll be drinking with Hong Sang Su and we'll make a podcast out of it. Yeah. And it'll be amazing. Definitely. All right. A kiss is just a kiss A sigh is just a sigh The fundamental things apply As time goes by And when two lovers woo They still say I love you 
On that you can rely No matter what the future brings As time goes by Moonlight and love songs Never out of day Hearts full of passion Jealousy and hate Woman needs man And man must have his mate That no one can deny It's still the same old story A fight for love and glory A case of do or die 